Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. I'm Rory, the neuroscience editor for TN, and I'm delighted to be joined by Tiffany Quinn, TN's custom content manager, and Karen Stewart, our immunology and microbiology editor on today's podcast. How are you both? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, good, good. Excited to get into this topic. And you, Karen? Yes, very good. Thank you. Good stuff. Today's podcast will be looking once again at the story of the year. Yes, I'm sorry, it is another COVID podcast. I'm sure you're raging and gnashing your teeth in your seats, but we are today looking at an area of COVID research that hasn't been covered in much detail by some of the other content on the site. It's namely how the SARS-CoV-2 virus affects our brain and our mental health. Now, initially, SARS-CoV-2 was considered a virus that really only targeted our respiratory system, but it quite quickly became clear that in addition to affecting other organs, such as the heart, SARS-CoV-2 also has neurological implications for our brain and nervous system. So today we'll investigate those effects, um, taking a look at uh, some interesting new research from uh, the Florian Institute uh, in Australia, and uh, we'll have a look at the couple of pieces that are in the site uh, looking at our mental health and our neurological health in COVID infection. So um, initially, folks, I wanted to talk a bit about um, a piece that I published earlier this week on uh, the neurological symptoms of COVID. Did you both have a chance to get a read of that? Yeah, I did. I found it very interesting, actually. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> very well done. <laughs> Flattery gets you everywhere in this podcast. I can tell it that. does, doesn't it? Um, it's uh, it's it's interesting with with neurological symptoms of COVID because there's a huge spectrum involved here. Now, in the same way that for some people COVID nineteen seems to manifest as potentially a slight cough, whereas for others there's very severe pneumonia and real damage and scarring seen in the lungs. In the same way, the neurological effects of the disease caused by the SARS CoV two virus. Uh, on the nervous system very hugely. So the most common and thankfully most mild symptom uh, related to our neurological symptom, our neurological system uh, is anosmia, the loss of smell and taste in, in a lot of patients. Now, it's it's obviously not great if you lose your, your sense of smell and taste, but in most cases, it seems to be a very temporary thing in COVID-19. And it's quite a good way of, of identifying it and, and calling it a hallmark because some people won't have a, an elevated temperature, uh, some people won't even have a cough, but uh, it seems that in roughly three out of four uh, COVID patients there is some loss of smell, although that's not a, a perfect uh, indicator as we'll see later in the podcast. So uh, initially anosmia is uh, something that's been has been recorded from the start of the pandemic and there was a, a statement that I mentioned in this article which you should be able to read in our show notes uh, below this podcast uh, which is a joint statement from uh, the presidents of the British Phrenological Society and from ENT UK uh, who are both um, organizations that look after uh, sort of nose and, and smell and, and taste um, areas of medicine so uh, it's, it's unsurprising that they noted a, a huge rise in the number of patients uh, showing these kind of symptoms. And in uh, in this article, I, I talked a bit with Rachel Brown, who's a clinical fellow at uh, the University College London, who'd helped author a view paper that took into account the, the nosmia and, and a whole number of other symptoms. So I was able to, to chat with her about um, 
what anosmia means. And, and she pointed out that the causes of this are often non-neurological, um, but it can be associated with uh, neurological disease. And we'll we'll get into that later in the podcast as well. But um, initially, anosmia is, is a mild a mild symptom, but there are more severe symptoms and clinical signs that have started to emerge. And uh, that was kind of the, the focus of, of Brown's review paper was to look at the more severe, rare and unusual neurological symptoms that started to appear in the first weeks of the COVID-19 outbreak uh, across several hospitals in London. Um, one of them was Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, a very rare but severe neurological symptom um, syndrome caused by the body's immune system attacking nerve cells located outside the brain in the, the peripheral nervous system. Uh, now, this has been noted repeatedly in COVID-19 patients and uh, can manifest as uh, burning sensations in patients' limbs. In severe cases, it can cause temporary paralysis and, and severe weakness in the limbs. So it's it's no small matter, which, uh, you know, relative to anosmia. Um, and one thing I would point out about this, and it was it was good to get this kind of clarity, I thought, uh, was that Guillain-Barre isn't necessarily a COVID symptom. It's more a viral infection symptom. And it has been typically seen after infection with viruses. So we're talking things like Zika virus and, and influenza. And, and this is something, writing and, and reading these pieces, I... Uh, I, I kind of struggled to get that um, that delineation between symptoms of COVID that are sort of signatures of COVID and, and other ones that just seem to be signatures of viral infection. Did you both find that too? Yeah, I did. I think I still struggle with that now. And I guess that's probably this whole conversation is pretty much on that whole spectrum, isn't it? It's even with when you're looking at some of these other neurological symptoms that you mentioned, I think that's where I struggle. It's okay, is this a consequence of other things that are happening or is it like a direct result of being infected with COVID? Mm -hmm. I think it's something that's sometimes not very well communicated in the media as well um, in terms of what they, they keep calling hallmarks of COVID. I think yes they might be seeing a, a steep rise in um, some of those extreme or the rare conditions that you mentioned Rory. Um, but they're talking about case numbers, so they might say, oh, we've seen five cases in a month where we would normally see five in a year, for example. But it's not necessarily because it's a hallmark of this disease. It's just that we've got so, so many cases. I, it's sort of, is it is it a hallmark or is it just because there are so many cases? Actually, percentage wise, it's just, as, as Tiff said, you know, it's uh, a case of having a viral infection. Yeah, is it like just a, it's like statistics in a way, isn't it? Are we bound to just get this sort of, yes, these sorts of symptoms in a small minority of people? It's proportional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I think it's it's so fortunate that um, anosmia being the, the one that seems to be most common and, and happened to the, the greatest number of COVID patients is, is so mild. Um, one of the other uh, rare symptoms, and we should make clear that these are rare symptoms the more severe neurological cases i mean that's part of the reason that they've not been covered very much is because uh, we already know the great great majority of covid cases do thankfully recover or are asymptomatic um, and we we know that the respiratory symptoms are the most common in severely ill patients so it's it's important to to note that uh, these neurological symptoms are rare but nonetheless it, it really does add something 
additional to the treatment of COVID when things like Adam-like illness are appearing. So Adam is a kind of uh, inflammation in the brain, a damage in the brain uh, called acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. I feel like every podcast I do, I'm challenged with a new word to pronounce that I never had to say <laughs> out loud before. So that's that's today's one. And uh, yeah, I think this is one of the ones, as, as you mentioned, Karen, it's it's something that's so rare that you probably, you know, as a neurological doctor in a, in a single hospital, barely ever see it. And uh, although there was an increase in the number of patients, it's, it's not saying that Adam is uh, something that's happening to all or even the majority of um, COVID-19 patients, but it does seem to be something that's happening because of COVID infection, if you say, I mean, you know, it, it wouldn't be happening without the COVID infection, but it doesn't necessarily define COVID infection or even happen to a, a large number of um, patients. So in this particular condition, there's a, a rush of immune cells into the central nervous system. And uh, it, although I have mentioned it is incredibly rare, it does in some variants cause very, very serious illness. So one case study I, I read about in this review paper um, included a woman with a, a variant that involved uh, bleeding and cell death in the brain that had to be treated with a, a hemicraniectomy, which I'd never heard of before, but involves um, chopping out a, a flap of the skull to remove the pressure. So this is a really serious condition. Um, what, one thing that seems to still be unclear, and Karen, I know you're the, the microbiology editor here at, at TN, so you might be able to um, offer some insight into this, is that a lot of these uh, conditions seem to be very immune in in uh, in origin rather than um, caused directly by the virus. It's caused by our, our body's reaction to it. Is that something that's quite common in, in a lot of these COVID symptoms and in viral infection more, more widely? Absolutely. Um, in infection in general, um, part of the way in which bacteria and viruses will act um, is to effectively use your body against you. Um, why, you know, why do the work themselves when they can get you to do it for them <laughs> yeah it's not it's not something that's particular to covid it's yeah it's quite a common thing even in terms of um if we're thinking about the brain for example um in terms of like brain infections and things like that um a virus may cross into the brain by itself infecting um uh, the, the cells uh, but equally they can hop into a, a monocyte or something which has free access across the blood-brain barrier to get into there and use the monocyte to infiltrate it for it or induce an uh, inflammation um, and an immune reaction which means the body will break down that barrier for it and allow the virus to get in freely. So yeah it's in it's not a COVID specific thing but it's, it's very common. Right that makes a lot of sense. I think um, this is something I, I, I did ask uh, Dr. Brown, when I was speaking with her, because it, it seemed to be, you know, quite a, a, a key aspect is, is the virus, as you say, infiltrating the brain, and and sadly, with so many uh, deaths in this this condition, um, there there would be a lot of cases in which doctors would be able to at least analyse people's uh, nervous systems to to find evidence after death of, of whether the virus had infiltrated. And what what she suggested is that although it's possible, as as you say, there there are mechanisms for viruses doing that. In SARS-CoV-2, there is limited evidence of it doing this. So there's a couple of cases that have been noted of finding a virus in the cerebral spinal fluid uh, that circulates inside our central nervous system. And I think maybe one or two single cases of the virus being detected inside the brain itself. But given 
as I said, how many people will have been analysed for this kind of thing. It, it certainly doesn't suggest that the majority of these neurological symptoms are being driven by um, direct viral inflammation. So that's maybe one thing that we can be a bit clear on. But what Brown was really saying is that a lot of these manifestations are coming in unique combinations. There is other complications like um, COVID has a, an effect, it seems, on, on people's blood thickness. And in a lot of cases, this boosts the likelihood of uh, neurological events like stroke happening. And in very severely ill patients, it's often a combination. And uh, not to not to pile too much on, but of course, that's just one aspect of, of how COVID is affecting our brains, because another key aspect is uh, psychiatric symptoms and effects on our mental health. Um, and this was a, a piece that was published a couple months back on the site uh, and was, again, an interview with a London-based doctor, this time Dr. Jonathan Rogers, who uh, I spoke to about the psychiatric presentations of, of COVID. And I felt the takeaway from this, I don't know what you both thought, was that potentially the, the psychiatric effects we're seeing with COVID are even harder to tie down to the condition as rather just something that we tie down to people who are being very severely ill in a, a pandemic, a really unprecedented event in our times. What did you think? I mean, Karen will probably be able to comment on this more, but I think, yeah, I guess what I find difficult with this is, again, like there's just so many factors, isn't there? So say with generally being unwell and when your immune system is compromised, you know, that's when you see some of these same symptoms of fatigue and uh, mood changes and all that kind of stuff that can happen with just having like a cold or a, or a flu, I think. So um, I think that makes it difficult. And then also, I think, as was touched on in your article, it's that fact of there are so many other things going on. And I think, was it Rogers who said you can have patients that are objectively getting better, but still when you take into account that these people are hearing the media hype of what's going on and everything can feel like you know it, it's much worse than it is and that can maybe hamper someone's recovery or at least their mental recovery and then with that I guess you've got symptoms so it feels like it's quite a complex thing going on to be able to go yes definitely Covid does have a direct influence on these things but I mean Karen can probably talk to that a bit more than me. Uh, I mean yeah I completely agree with it it's such a a multifactorial um, condition and there are so many things to be taken into account. You're talking about um, the also the restrictions in hospitals so if people are feeling very very isolated and scared that's going to contribute to their, their men feeling of mental well-being even if they are physically getting better. Um, I mean for some people being in hospital is a pretty horrible experience anyway they're scary you've got white coat syndrome so if you're doing that without the support of your family um, and also when the medics and the nursing staff um, are having to wear the protective equipment as well. It's 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 bound to add up. One thing I found quite interesting in this piece is that although we published it a few months back, uh, even then there was some discussion of uh, the long-term effects of fatigue and COVID. And fatigue is one of the dimensions of what's kind of I've seen it certainly more commonly being called long COVID. Uh, that's appearing amongst uh, certain people who've been infected by the virus um, and who have seen their symptoms um, and some symptoms at least so commonly things like feeling tired all the time having no energy these things are are persisting far beyond the the rest of the clinical course of the disease so 
uh, you know, it's, it's quite typical for people to recover uh, within a few weeks, but there's been reports of people months after infection still feeling like they have no energy. And um, one thing that, that Rogers highlighted was that the patients had said uh, in their, their case reports that the care that they'd received for fatigue was much poorer than that given for the, the more classical symptoms, like I suppose respiratory symptoms. So it's possibly good that, that long COVID is being highlighted more, right, because clearly these these other symptoms aren't being looked at in as much detail and given as much thought um, in the in dimensions of medical care. Yeah, I mean, the, the fatigue side of things is not um, specific to COVID. So for anyone who's ever had glandular fever, um, fatigue is one of those things that tends to persist for a very long time, for weeks, months, and sometimes even years after people have recovered. Um, and I guess the thing with COVID, because they're having so many cases come through, keeping on top of the post-care for those long cases can be a challenge because they've got this constant stream of new cases with acute symptoms and acute clinical signs to try and keep on top of. So in terms of care, it's not, it's, I mean, it's, it's bad that they are slipping through the net, but it's not entirely unsurprising, I would say anyway. No, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, in particular, some of the, the other symptoms that, that Roger mentioned, um, I don't think there's been uh, too many articles trying to to point out this link but often symptoms and waving my fingers here but you can't really see it symptoms of covid are, are, are talking about the rates of depression and anxiety or ptsd for example in, in patients after covid and, and sometimes it's mentioned as if they're you know being caused somehow by covid but um what was clear from from talking to, to dr rogers and from his review was that the the rates of of mood disorders in covid patients weren't different from that of the general population um, whilst the rate of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was a bit higher than we'd expect to see. It's probably, it's it's not any higher, he said, than what you'd expect to see from patients who've been seriously ill in this way and, and gone through this uh, very stressful event of being in hospital during a pandemic. So with regards to the, the psychiatric, if there is a signature of coronavirus infection, it, it's much harder to pin down and clearly more data will be required before we can conclude if there's anything uh, in, in that area of medicine that is, is directly caused by COVID and, and not just, as Karen's mentioned there, caused more generally. Now, the final thing I wanted to talk about and the reason that this podcast is entitled Investigating the Silent Wave is perhaps a dimension of COVID that we've, we've not even seen yet, um, seen start to occur. And to kind of introduce this, I'll need to actually go back 100 years uh, to the previous biggest pandemic. After the First World War killed tens of millions of soldiers and civilians, no one had predicted that another cause of death would actually overtake it in the same decade. But that's exactly what happened with the 1918 influenza outbreak or the Spanish flu. Again, fingers are being waved here. Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. So this killed 50 million people worldwide. but something that I'd, I'd not really heard about, um, I was aware of, of these twin horrors, but uh, another dimension of that epidemic was that of a neurological condition called encephalitis lethargica. Now, at the time in the 1910s, 1920s, obviously neurological care uh, wasn't as robust as it is now, but even back then they were able to identify a lot, a wide range of uh, neurological symptoms that they put under this this banner of encephalitis, this lethargica. So depending on the form of the disease, 
patients with this condition either slept all the time, became manic and started chewing and twitching uncontrollably, or in some rare cases became, and I'll quote here from a, a review paper, rigid and immobile for long periods of time. Uh, but the rigidity could be overcome with slight external force. Patients with the amyostatic akinetic form remained mentally intact, but their emotions were hardly noticeable on masked faces. Recovery could be slow or rapid, with a condition sometimes lasting several months. Now, as I said before, this isn't something I'd, I'd heard about. It sounds absolutely bizarre, people becoming waking statues um, due to a, a, a cause that even to this day remains mysterious. And what it's been estimated is roughly a million plus people contracted this uh, over the, the period just after 1918. And uh, the kind of follow-up from, from this is that um, we, we really don't know what caused it. Now, some studies have suggested uh, a rare virus caused encephalitis lethargica. Others say it was a direct result of uh, infection from um, the influenza outbreak, although several studies using more modern techniques looking back have, have refuted this. And other theories were that it was some kind of rare autoimmune disease that might have been primed by uh, infection by the influenza strain. Now, the reason I bring this up and why it's relevant to today is that a final review paper, which you can access in our show notes um, from the Florey Institute in Melbourne, uh, has highlighted that uh, there may be another wave of autoimmune-related Parkinsonism symptoms that might follow um, COVID-19. Now, uh, in the decades back in the 1910s, 1920s, in the decades following that outbreak of encephalitis lethargica, it was estimated that as many as half of Parkinson's-like cases were actually post-encephalitic cases. So they have tied uh, an outbreak and an epidemic of Parkinson's disease in, in that time period to this, this rare neurological condition. So the authors of this review paper have, have kind of drawn broad parallels between these two time points. And included some interesting quotes in the review, um, which have highlighted that because encephalitis lethargica came at a time when neurological care was uh, less robust um, and kind of disappeared after uh, a period of 15, 20 years, it's kind of been forgotten by history and, and people have failed to kind of look back and, and think, why, why exactly was that happening? And it's, it's hard to get evidence for, right, because it happened so long ago now. But um, one thing that is clear is that chronic neuroinflammation is thought to play a role in the beginnings of Parkinson's disease. And there was some suggestion in the review that viruses, um, while they aren't causally linked, there is no causal evidence linking viruses to Parkinsonism. Uh, there's a hypothesis which they put forward that some kind of um, first hit by a, an unknown pathogen um, in the 1918 case, they were suggesting it was encephalitis lethargica, and uh, in this review, they're they're positing that, that COVID might pr produce this first hit, um, results in a kind of priming of the of the brain for um, later vulnerability to to be, uh, developing Parkinsonism. Now, uh, this is you know it's, it's it's important to clear up that they're not suggesting that that COVID is going to cause people to get Parkinson's disease, and uh, Instead, they're they're simply suggesting that because there's some um, shared symptoms like loss of smell, which is a, a common thing that begins in Parkinson's disease, 
that there, there might be some link between the two. But I have a number of questions about this kind of theory, and I, I suppose you two will as well. What did you reckon about the about that discussion? I think it's an interesting hypothesis, and I have to say I had not heard of um, the, the previous cases from the 1918 that you'd mentioned. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens. So I know uh, viral infection, for example, has been attributed, uh, although it can't be necessarily directly attributed, but um, it certainly had its the finger pointed at it for starting a number of conditions, um, things like ME as well. So it's an interesting theory. Yeah, I found this one. I'm, I'm in agreement with Karen. I'd never heard, ever heard that evidence from a hundred years ago so that was quite interesting and I guess it does help to look back at you know have a bit of a different perspective perhaps but yeah I'm not really sure where I sit I think we need to obviously look into it a lot more but it's difficult because it's going back to what we said about how when there is a lot when when there are so many complex diseases that are multifactorial it's very hard to decipher where all these things where the boundaries of everything are so I guess it does kind of make sense to go in that direction and think okay yeah so if some of these symptoms are the same do we need to go down this avenue but I I, yeah I just don't know how I feel about it (laughs) it's very strange I'll I'll tell you why I was a wee bit skeptical and it's partly because the article this review paper was focusing quite a bit on anosmia the loss of smell now it has been seen in many Parkinson's cases far before the the typical symptoms of that condition like motor dysfunction appear uh, people lose their sense of smell um, and so the part of the paper at least seems to be saying well people lose the smell in COVID as well so but in, in practice and this is something that Dr Brown actually mentioned in, in her review the ways in which people are losing their sense of smell are completely different in Parkinson's disease it's a very gradual loss of smell that is permanent uh, whereas in COVID, it, it's really interesting actually. So one particular study, which we can link as well in the show notes, um, looked at 45 COVID-19 patients and 22 of them said, yes, I've, I've had a change in my smell, it's reduced, it's changed somehow. Um, but in this study, they then did practical tests in the lab. Now, my favorite thing about tests of smell is that the best technology out there is something called sniffing sticks. So these are, <laughs> yeah, I know it's great, sniffing sticks. So these are little pen shaped um, tests, which essentially each of them has a, a very particular smell enclosed within it that's sort of standardized using particular chemicals. So uh, um, these are, are jammed in people's noses and they are asked to, to tell what they can can they smell. And it was determined that rather than the, the 22 out of 45, in fact, 38 of 45 COVID-19 patients had some form of dysfunction to their smell. So that was 16 of the 45 patients had changes to their sense of smell, but didn't even notice it. And because it's so temporary and transient, people could quite easily have gone um, without any other symptoms, but had loss of smell and just not really reported at the time. It might have only been lasted a week or two and potentially they they could have just passed them by. So the types of anosmia and and lack of smell involved are really different. And I think, again, there's it's it's a big step to go from saying that this happened 100 years ago with with a different virus will it happen um with uh, with with coronavirus now um what what i think is is useful about the the paper is that it's again just saying to the medical community this is something we have to look out for we have to be primed and ready for a third silent wave 
manifesting in years to come and that seems really prudent to me but I think it's really important to communicate to the public that uh, there's no evidence that viruses cause Parkinson's disease and there's currently no evidence that coronavirus is going to do so either um, so it's 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 difficult to to find that balance because there's so many studies I'm finding right now Karen you'll be the uh, taking the brunt of this that are, are kind of seem to be I'm not suggesting this assurance that he's doing this, but certainly there seems to be some studies that are kind of just hopping on a coronavirus bandwagon and tying their own uh, field of research to it, even if it's got a tangential or no relationship. Are you finding that? Yeah, there are definitely some you read and it's it's shoehorned in there just because yeah. it's time. Um, yeah, and there's also that danger of correlation versus causation. With something like this, the scientist in me wants to fulfil Cox postulates. And with something like this, you can't do that. You can't take... A biological agent give it to something say yes x causes y it's very much correlation mm-hmm. and in science that sometimes makes me a bit uneasy i don't know about you <laughs> no absolutely you're spot on there so i think that's all we're going to cover today um, we've looked at the psychiatric and neurological symptoms of of covid and also looked to uh, uh, a future where we might need to be really wary of uh, a third wave of symptoms but in general, um, clearly there's a lot more research to be done in this area to, to tease out exactly how these different symptoms are related to uh, COVID-19 uh, disease pathology. But um, a big thank you to Tiff and Karen for joining me on today's podcast. And a big thank you as well to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back, as always, in two weeks' time with another Opinionated Science. And uh, yeah, please stay tuned and please comment and share this podcast and don't keep your opinions to yourself. Bye for now.